The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 18 begins with Eridine in a cell. She is awaiting her execution that is scheduled for the next morning. She allows herself the luxury of some bittersweet memories, recalling a song her lover used to sing. Then she retrieves her pack of thieves' tools, successfully smuggled inside, and takes her shot at picking the lock on the door. She fails to pick the lock, and in the morning she's led to the gallows where she's to be hanged. Eridine foregoes an exchange of confession for mercy and is strung up in front of a small crowd that includes her friends, Sheriff Marlock, and her accuser, Maynard Magari, among others. All seems lost for the young woman until, just in time, Harl comes charging out of the armory. He has spent the night in the rookery waiting for a reply to a message he sent the previous night. In the dwarf's hand is a royal order that commands the full party to attend an audience with the Lord of the Highforge. Marlock has no choice, he cannot jeopardize the relationship he's built with the dwarves over the fate of a petty criminal, a criminal who's described by his own captain as a hero. Eridine is let down and released. The party quickly leaves town and heads in the direction of the Windless Rise. After only a few hours of travel, they see riders in the distance, closing fast. It's Magari and his mercenaries come to exact his revenge. Chapter 19, Part 1, Day 24, Noon, Party Status, Harl, 8 of 8 hit points, Kagan, 16 of 16 hit points, Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points, Gyrios, 14 of 14 hit points, Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points, Spells Available, Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Charm Person. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. Go! Harl was standing a few feet in front of the now motionless cart 
with his axe at the ready. You have no chance against them in the open. Run for the trees! We aren't going to leave you to fight them alone, Harl, yelled Kagan, fastening the shield to his arm and fumbling at the buckles on his armor. I know what I'm doing. If you trust me, then go! Run! Kagan made his decision and sprinted for the tree line. Umura, Gyrios, and Balifor trailed behind. Eredin, still dressed in nothing but her prisoner's frock and undergarments, was fast, already in front of the rest. Down the road, the charging riders responded, with one of the spearmen staying the course, hurtling toward the lone dwarf, and the others veering right to catch the party before they made it to the trees. Whether the party makes it or not will come down to a simple initiative roll. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's see what our party is up against. Magari himself is not so tough. He's a level one fighter, trained but inexperienced. He's not armored, not having expected to need it, he brought none. For this reason, and because he has hired men to fight for him, he will limit his involvement in this battle. Magari's mercenaries, however, are seasoned fighters. They do wear armor, and each of them is a real threat. Here's a brief overview of these men. The two wielding spears are level two fighters wearing chainmail armor. They have shields, but did not have them equipped as they needed the full use of their left arm to control their galloping steeds. This gives them a base armor class of five. Each man is tough with 13 hit points but the toughest of the mercenaries is a level three fighter with 21 hit points. He's armored as the others are and has a base AC of five as well. Like Magari, he carries a longsword. There's a surprising lack of details in the BX rules surrounding the mechanics of mounted combat. The search online produced a labyrinth of details, none of which satisfied my criteria of being simple and clean. It appears that I'll need to make up my own rules. Certainly there's a big advantage to fighting from horseback against a smaller opponent. Logic and actual history bears this out. I'll say that a weapon used from a charging horse will do double damage, but that the charge can only happen once. After that, I'll award a plus two bonus to attack rolls and an improvement of one to the rider's armor class, with both of these modifiers attributable to the rider's height advantage. The mercenary's adjusted AC then will be four where Megari's is still quite poor at an eight. Let's get into round one. This very first initiative roll is crucial for the party. If they lose and one of the men scores a hit, charging and dealing double damage, Harl, Eredin, and Umura are all at risk of dying in a single hit. Initiative. Magari's men. They've rolled a one. The party. A two. It's extremely close, but the party manages to act a split second before the mercenaries. Harl leaps backward and rolls under the cart, as the spearmen attacking him can do nothing but pull his horse to the side and pass harmlessly by. The two ponies, now unhitched from the wagon, bolt in fear. Everyone else leaps into the protection of the trees just before the horsemen can reach them. 
the party has effectively taken away the double damage potential of their charge. Deprived of their chance, the mercenaries cannot take any meaningful action, and so we're on to the next round. Round two. Initiative. Megari's men. A five. The party. A one. Megari and his men adjust to the new situation quickly. They dismount, using their horses as cover. Any attacks on them will be at a minus four penalty. Those same attacks might hit their horses, but there will be no chance of the rider being thrown. The spearman threatening Harl does likewise. Come and play with me, my little man. Harl will roll across to the other side of the wagon and engage the man in hand-to-hand combat in the next round. At this point, Kagan and Gyrios can do little, and they must wait to act. Eridine, Balifer, and Umura, however, can take an action. Although he's not the greatest threat to them, Eridine will not miss this chance to take a shot at Megari. She needs a 15 to hit him. Here's the roll. 18, that's a hit. Eridine's done four points of damage. Her arrow slices a deep cut across the right side of Megari's face, just as he's trying to get off his horse and causes him to fall to the ground. Megari lands hard. He's deeply shaken and has only one hit point left. Balifer aims at the newly dismounted spearman. The spearman is using his mount for cover, and Balifer will need a 19 to hit him. A score from 14 to 18 will hit the horse. He's rolled a 5. He's missed completely. Next up is Umura. Umura will waste no time and cast the spell Charm Person on the swordsman. The swordsman has a saving throw of 16. That's a tough save. His roll? A 9. The fighter stumbles and rubs his face with his free hand. He's completely disoriented. And within a few seconds, he is under her spell. Round 3. Initiative. Megari's men. A four. The party. A one. Maynard finds himself lying on the ground, with blood running from a deep cut in his face. He looks around desperately for cover. He sees a nearby ravine, and while he has the strength, he crawls into it, hoping that the mercenaries will finish the job quickly. Megari's spearman breaks from the cover of his horse and rushes towards the wood. The first opponent he comes across is Kagan, and he thrusts his spear savagely. He needs a 15 to hit Kagan's armor class. With a 6, he misses. Right behind him is the swordsman who's been charmed by Umura. This man is the leader of their band and the most dangerous of them. He now sees his fellow spearman as a threat to his friend Umura and attacks from behind. I'll give him a plus 2 bonus to the roll. He'll need a 12 to hit his former colleague. He's rolled a six. The spearman has heard him rush up and, by instinct, dodges the swing. Over by the road, the other spearman faces off with Harl in hand-to-hand combat. Time to die, filthy dwarf. This spearman needs a 15 to hit Harl's AC. He faints and thrusts. But a seven will not do it. Harl parries the blow and prepares a counterattack. He needs a 13 to hit the spearman with whom he's facing off one on one. He's rolled a 15. That's a hit. Harl's battle axe clips the man, but for just two points of damage. Eridine loses another arrow. This time, unable to see Megari, she fires at the approaching spearman. With a nine, she has missed. Balifer, using his crossbow, tries to put a quarrel in the same man. Another nine, another miss. There's not too much Umura can do at this point. 
so she simply calls out to the swordsman to protect her and her friends. Don't let them hurt us! Kagan swings back at the spearman, with whom he is now engaged. He needs a 13 to hit. An 18! Kagan has hit for five points of damage. At this point, Gyrios also springs from the trees and swings at that same man. He needs a 14 to hit. With a 10, he has missed. Round four, initiative. Magari's men, a five. The party, a three. The mercenaries have won again, but at this point, I need to do a morale check. Their leader is bewitched, they're outnumbered, and their benefactor is hiding in the dirt. Still, these are professional killers with a high morale. I'll say it's a 10. Here's the roll. It's an eight. They'll stay and fight, at least for now. The spearman on Kagan realizes that he's surrounded, but he figures that if he can take down this one man, he can even the odds. He jabs at Kagan again, but there's just too many men around him. He's rolled a three and has missed badly. His former leader, the swordsman, now attacks him, but an 11 is a miss. Magari, holding a hand to his face, which continues to bleed profusely, is looking around for a chance to escape. He notices that his horse is not too far away. A little ways away on the road, the spearman and Harl continue to circle around the wagon. You slippery little mouse! Each one looking for a chance to strike. Why don't you come here and get me? The spearman thrusts. A seven. That's a miss. Now it's the party's turn. Harl springs forward and swings his axe. He has rolled a four and is also missed. How's this for a little mouse? Back at the tree line, Eridine is drawing her short sword. She's noticed that Harl is fighting alone. She sprints to help him, but she cannot get there this round. Kagan strikes at the spearman. An 11. That's close, but not good enough. Balifer, unable to fire into melee, is effectively out of the fight for now. He scans the road, looking for Magari. This fighter is doing an impressive job, fending off three opponents at the same time. Gyrios swings his flail, but he's not used to this weapon yet. He's rolled a two. It's a clumsy attempt and a miss. Round five, initiative. Magari's men, a five, the party, another five. In this round, all action is simultaneous, which means that if anybody's incapacitated, they will still have a chance to counterattack. We'll start with the enemy's side. The spearman on Kagan makes his move. He needs a 15 to hit. A 13. The sharp tip of the spear scrapes across Kagan's shield harmlessly. The mercenary with the sword attacks. A 17. That's a hit. But he only does one point of damage. Over by the wagon, the spearman makes a savage thrust. A 14. A miss, but very, very close. As for Magari, I'm going to give him a 50% chance to make a run for his horse. On a percentile die. A 36. He does. Magari runs for it, but Balifer notices this and takes the shot. Balifer will need an 11 to hit the noble as he flees. An 8. The quarrel whizzes by harmlessly, spurring Magari to run even faster. Eridine has now closed with the spearman. She attacks. A four is a miss. Harl swings out with his battle axe. A six. 
He's also missed. Ha! Huh. Back at the tree line, Kagan is fighting the spearman. A 15, that's a hit. For another four points of damage, they're wearing this man down bit by bit. He now only has three hit points left and he's bleeding badly. Gyrios also swings at the spearman. A 19, this time Gyrios hits. For four points of damage, the ball end of Gyrios' flail cracks the man in the head and his helmet cannot save him. Ha! He goes down in a heap. Round six. This will be the final round of battle. Magari will either escape or die in the attempt, and the other soldier will almost certainly give up. No rolling is necessary when the odds are so impossibly stacked against him. Especially when, from his perspective, his own leader has betrayed him and switched sides. Initiative. Magari's man. Five. The party. A one. Magari has made it to his horse. He's a skilled rider and swings his broken body up into the saddle smoothly and digs in his spurs. <laughs> Balafur will raise his crossbow, but Gyrios will stop him from firing. I don't think he's a threat to us any longer, my friend. The remaining mercenary looks around and throws his spear to the ground, putting his hands in the air. I surrender! This fight is over. Are you in need of edge of your seat adventure? Do you like dangerous jungles filled with the undead, ancient dangers and sarcastic goblins? Do you want to hear five friends battle their way through both bad accents and the land of Chult in the search of an insidious death curse? Are you looking for a detergent that actually does what it promises? If you answered yes to all of these questions, except possibly the detergent one, then do I have a deal for you? Listen to Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges, an actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast from the UK, playing through the Doom of Annihilation campaign. What's the cost? Nothing. It's free. Yes, you heard that right. Free to listen to on all podcast apps. Everyone loves it. Just listen to this person I've just met. Can you get that out of my face? See? So join us at the table every Tuesday with Trolls of the Two-Ton Bridges. Adventure! Magari's pursuit of the companions has turned out to be a total failure. Amazingly, the party did not take a single hit during the entire exchange. While Balafur retrieves their ponies, Umura asks her new friend to kindly escort the spearman and the riderless horse back to Burke, where she promises to meet them later. The charmed fighter is only too happy to oblige, and they both ride off with the extra horse in tow. Kagan checks the body of the poor spearman who essentially had to fight them all by himself, and finds a few items of interest. We'll get to those momentarily. Before rehitching their wagon and continuing on their way, the party will also take the fallen mercenary's spear and suit of chain mail. Balifer says that selling it will help offset the cost of his business having been interrupted. The dwarf is also worried that he might not be safe when he returns to Burke eventually. But Harl assures him, the men that attacked them were not from that town. Once they're back on the road, Kagan decides to kill some time by doing a full inventory. From the mercenaries, they took a flask of cheap whiskey, a flint and steel, four candles, and a whetstone. They also took a number of coins that Kagan now adds to their total. 
Back when they'd arrived at Burke, they were forced to pay a tax on their findings. Marlock had kept it simple and taken the flower-shaped brooch of gold and emeralds. Lord Skelling would eventually be the recipient of this piece of jewelry, and, in a dark twist of irony, its sale would end up partially funding Raffenfell's research. Aurea Santanir, Captain Tor, and Riley had also each been given a share of the treasure. 25 gold pieces apiece. A further 50 gold pieces was deducted and given to the families of the fallen soldiers. What remained, after dividing the mercenary's purse, and after subtracting the money that Marlock took when he made them purchase the armor he'd given them on loan, plus the coins they already had, amounted to just four gold pieces, 351 silver pieces, and 82 coins of copper. Kagan, thinking of all the money coming into their possession and then leaving it just as quickly, gave a wry smile. But still, things weren't so bad. They still had the silver necklace, and the candelabra, and the garnet ring. Furthermore, the mail on their backs now belonged to them. If you're curious to see the party's full inventory, including all of the equipment they've acquired so far, I'll post updated character sheets on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Between the Lines Like almost every other battle that's occurred in Tale of the Manticore, the battle with the mercenaries did not go quite the way I'd expected. I'd thought that three fighters of level 2 and 3 on horseback would provide a significant challenge for the party. With Eredin unarmored, and Harl being only level 1, if the dice rolls had gone differently, we might well have had another party death on our hands. As it turns out, the party walked away without a single scratch. This was especially surprising to me because when I rolled up the mercenaries' hit points, they rolled really well, getting scores of 13, 13, and 21, respectively, for second-level fighters who only get a D8 per level. This battle, and the last couple of battles actually, have got me thinking that there are a couple of issues concerning hit points that I need to work out in Tale of the Manticore. 1. When characters and enemies are first or low level, and have relatively few hit points, it makes sense to describe every hit in combat as an actual wound, a blade raking across the chest, a club breaking bones, etc. But as the characters and their opponents rise in power, it makes less and less sense to describe it this way. This is a topic that belongs more in a Reddit forum than here, so I won't go into a lot of detail. But suffice it to say that hit points represent more than just health. They're an abstract idea. They represent luck and stamina and skill in reducing damage as it comes. Well, that's all well and good, but I feel it would be strange for me to play through a combat and announce a hit, and then describe it as a narrow miss. That could be confusing. So, in future you may find that during combat, I announce a hit with damage, but don't fully describe it. 2. One more thing concerning hit points. I think my decision to award PC's maximum hit points per level is a solid decision, but only for lower levels. I've decided that for level 3 and beyond, so that my PCs don't get overpowered, I'm going to apply my 50% min-out rule to them as well. So, for example, if Kagan, who's now level 2 and has 16 maximum hit points, gets to level 3, I'll roll a d8 and boost any result under a 5 to a 5. Hopefully, doing this now will preserve the excitement in battles to come. Chapter 19 Part 2 Day 24 Evening. Party status. All party members are at maximum hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Hold portal. Girios has prayed for. Cure light wounds. 
The road between Burke and the foothills was little more than a dirt path, moving up a slow and steady incline. The wagon's wheels bumped aloft, making a crunching sound. The air began to cool. Eventually, the sun dipped in the sky, and they entered the foothills of the Skundramoir. Kagan woke up. He'd been dozing on a sack of pelts. He sat up, careful not to wake Umura, who snored softly beside him. Impulsively, he reached ahead and squeezed Aradine's shoulder, wanting her to know how glad he was and how things had turned out in Burke. She twisted in her seat and gave him a little smile. At long last, addressing nobody in particular, he said, I think we've left Camertine. You know, I never thought I'd get to travel beyond the king's borders. I had always wanted to see the mountains up close, said Girios. He had finished a new set of prayers begun at sunset. After that, he had simply sat, looking out the side of the cart and appreciating the landscape as it panned across his vision. Eredin wanted to say something, but her throat hurt too much to talk. She just offered the two men another smile. The cart lurched over a large rock, and then they could feel the road incline more steeply as gravity forced them to adjust their seats. The pony slowed with the increase in effort, and the road began to exchange its straight form for a serpentine one. By sunset, they could see smoke and lighted windows in the distance. Beyond that, huge gray mountains loomed, growing dark, and eventually blending into the evening dim. Oh, it's nice to come home said Harl. I thought dwarves lived in the mountains, said Kagan. All this time I pictured a citadel somewhere. He pointed to where a huge mountain had been visible before, up there. Oh, I do, Harl replied. But the citadel isn't big enough to hold all the dwarves of the High Forge. Most of us live in the foothills. I had no idea, Kagan admitted. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to get enough game or wood or crops. Right, I guess that makes sense. As they neared the small dwarven town, they passed between fields of barley rippling in the breeze. Then came the occasional farm, and finally, the village itself. The road was of much better quality once they entered the town, the dirt road, now of cobblestones. Many villagers were still outside, hanging close to dry, splitting logs and chasing chickens. Some of them had come to the roadside to call a friendly hello to Balifer. When they saw the humans in the group, many a face split into a wide grin. Children laughed and waved, thrilled to receive a wave in return. Some of the dwarves noticed and recognized Harl. They did not call out his name as they did to Balifer, but instead bowed deeply at the waist until the cart had passed. Others stood in their fields, leaning against their scythes and watching the cart roll by with slitted eyes. They pointedly did not bow. Some of them spat at their feet or muttered under their breath at the sight of the group. Before long, the town and its wondrous sights, smells, and sounds were behind them. The road became a dirt trail once again, and grew steeper still. It wound up the mountain like an enormous gray serpent. It might have been her imagination, but to Umura, awake since they had entered the village, it seemed that the air had already grown cooler with the altitude. She rubbed her arms and tucked a lock of her hair behind her ear. Harl, can I ask you a question? Of course. What would you know? Replied the dwarf. Well, I was wondering. Back in Burke, when you read that royal order. Yes? Well, when you read it out, it had all of our names on it, but it didn't have Captain Tor's name or Riley's. 
In the dim light, nobody could see Harl's face turn a shade of pink. Oh, yes. Very observant of you to have noticed, he said. Harl was silently grateful that Sheriff Marlock had not. Oh, well, when I sent a bird to the High Forge informing them of our, um, situation, I was worried that a reply might arrive too late to be of help, so I... Ah. I see, Umura laughed. Very clever. But how did you make the seal of your lord? What did you say his name was? Her name, Lord Clenneth. Yes, forgive me, Lord Clenneth Stonecarver, isn't that your name too? It is, and Thurns as well, and a hundred other dwarves. But, but the seal, how did you accomplish that? The heraldric sign, as you humans would call it, is, well, it's embossed on the butt of my axe. Umura laughed. Very, very clever. Wonderful. But it does leave me wondering what sort of reception is waiting for us when we arrive. Harl turned around, looked Umura in the eyes, and shrugged. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Lately, I've been reading one of these great reviews at the end of each episode, and I'd like to read another one right now. This one is from MD Yang of Canada. I binge listened to this. It's exciting because not even the GM slash narrator knows what's going to happen next because the dice truly tell the tale. I like how the characters are developed as the episodes progress and you get to learn more about their past. Combat goes quickly without players bogging down the action with chatter, and the GM does a great job interpreting the various die rolls. Very dynamic. Thank you so much for your review, MD Yang. A special thanks goes to Stephen Quinn of the Dungeons & Dodos YouTube channel for voicing Mercenary Number 1. Stephen, thank you very much for your contribution to the show. For rants, show notes, and occasional maps, character sheets, tables, and other items related to the show, as well as links to background music from the show and available for free to use in your own games or shows, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. No Small Rolls a D&D podcast where there are no small roles and no small consequences. Well, we do have the occasional small role. <laughs> so, six. That's a natural two for me for a total of eight. Don't think I've uh, I've I've perceived very well. <laughs> natural two, so that's a three. Oh my gosh, it's a natural one. <laughs> <laughs> We've prepared our party of players. And our polyhedral dice. So join our merry band of actors for a D&D podcast filled with intrigue, adventure, and laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Search for No Small Roles on your favourite podcasting app, Spotify, and YouTube. And And on for now. now. And none.